Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Julie Fetty, and I'm the host of Gender Studies at New Books Network. And today I am thrilled to speak today with Amy Everard, uh, who will be discussing her book, The Moroccan Women's Rights Movement. This book was published by Syracuse University Press this year, 2014. Amy is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania, and she also teaches in the Middle East and Islamic Studies program there. Amy Everard did her doctoral studies at Harvard, and this is her first book that she'll be talking about with us today. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. I'm happy to be talking to you. Such a pleasure. So can we begin with a little introduction? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and what inspired you to write this book? Yes. Well, as you said, I'm at Gettysburg College and very involved in Middle East and Islamic studies, um, and I'm an anthropologist. And I... the journey to get to this book really began with an interest in Islam in Africa a long time ago um, after I'd been a Peace Corps volunteer in Cameroon in West Africa and was really struck by how well Muslim and Christian communities sort of interacted and lived together and got along there. Um, And so when I started thinking about grad school, I knew I wanted to be an anthropologist and I thought I wanted to study Islam in West Africa. And as I began studying um, Arabic and a little bit about Islamic history, I just really fell in love with the Arab world, Arab history, Arab literature, Arabic language. And um, for my first summer in graduate school, we were supposed to go and study our field language abroad. And I was looking for an Arabic program and I can't even remember why, but ended up in Morocco to study Arabic that first summer. And I absolutely fell in love with Morocco. And um, it's just an, such an amazing place that really is kind of African, kind of Arab, kind of European, and really uniquely itself. So I just decided I was going to study Morocco, and I didn't really know what I was going to study, but I stayed there and went with it, and somehow this project found me and called to me. Um, And I guess the rest is history. (laughs) So it must have been also during your doctoral studies that that you began to focus on on women and women's rights movements. And this is the focus of your book. So so how did you get drawn to that particular aspect of contemporary Morocco? It's funny because I'd never, I, I didn't have any intention of studying women and had never been particularly interested in women's issues or feminist issues or anything like that. But um, during one of the first weekends I was in Morocco, um, an incident occurred. I was living in a really um, crowded area in um, one of the major cities in Morocco, and everyone would have their windows open, you know, and we all lived so close to each other that we could just always hear what was going on in each other's little houses and apartments. And I actually heard a man beating his wife um, in the apartment next to us, and it went on for quite a while and was really 
obviously shocking and upsetting. And I was talking to my host family about what had happened. And um, they kind of explained the situation and said that actually this happened frequently. Um, and we could intervene. We could call the police. The police would come and take him, arrest him, and, you know, take care of the problem. But that the woman had asked that her neighbors not intervene in that way because she was very um, far away from her family. She was financially uh, or financially dependent on her husband, and she felt that um, for him to be taken away would be actually worse than living through the abuse. So that just really hit me on all levels, and I just started asking lots of questions about it. Um, you know, everyone I knew, um, my host family, people at the language center where I was studying, other neighbors, and I just really became so interested in the complexities of women's lives in Morocco and everywhere. I mean, this scene could have played out in any country um, and, and became one of the solutions I kept hearing again and again for the problem was legal change and women's rights and, you know, this women's rights movement that addressed those issues. So as soon as I found them again, it was, I felt like that the project itself just grabbed me and said, this is what you have to study. So you do look at in your book um, in depth the Moroccan family code known as the Mudawana, um, which was reformed in 2004. So can you just give us a brief overview of what is this family code and why is it at the center of your book? It is um, it, it's a very important um, family code in all Muslim countries or in all Muslim communities, um, the family code sort of delineates rights to um, men and women based on their position in the family. So um, husbands have certain kinds of rights and responsibilities. Wives do, parents do, children's children do. Um, and it's the family code or the personal status code, as it's called in some societies, um, is quite difficult to change, as you can imagine, because those laws get to the heart of what that society feels its family and social organization is all about. So um, this uh, Mudawana in Morocco underwent a vast reform in 2004 that was just really significant in its scope. It... Um, First of all, established husbands and wives as equal heads of the household. Previously, men, uh, the husband was the head of the household and the wife uh, owed him obedience because of that. Um, it also expanded women's rights to divorce and child custody. Um, it removed, or it didn't remove, but it changed a previous requirement that of a woman uh, would contract her marriage through a male relative. Um, and it, it didn't abolish that, but it said that a woman could either choose to have a male relative contract her marriage or she could contract it herself. Um, and it also uh, made polygamy very difficult to practice. Um, and oh, it seems like there's one other thing that's really important. Divorce? Um, yeah, divorce, like an expansion of divorce. Oh, and, and a, the ability for women to divorce basically for what we would call irreconcilable differences. Previously, a woman could divorce her husband, but it had to be for certain reasons like abuse, um, infertility, abandonment, things like that that she would kind of have to prove 
that after the 2004 reform on paper, she had the right to go to the court and just say, I just, you know, I don't want to be married anymore um, and have that kind of be the reason. So it was a very revolutionary reform and really had been at the center of um, the efforts of people in the women's rights movement until that time. Okay. So before we get into the heart of that matter, maybe it's important for our readers um, to or listeners to um, just have a brief rundown of Moroccan history, complicated history, right? It is Moroccan territory inhabited since B.C., Berber tribes, and then there's an Islamic period, um, men, a dynastic period and, uh, leading up to the French protectorate, right? So could you just help us with an overview to to then understand contemporary Morocco. Okay. Um, this will be fun because I started off life as a history major. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the, um, Morocco was a French protectorate until um, independence in 1958. And actually the Mudawana, the, the family code, was established shortly after that by the, the king at that time. Um, and so in this, the women's rights story kind of begins in this post-colonial nationalist period when Morocco, like other formerly colonized countries, was very much trying to decide its identity. You know, are we going to continue to be kind of French? Are we going to be Arabic? Are we going to be Berber? Are we going to be a combination of all of these? What will the role of women be and men be? Um, and there were some really early women's organizations started then um, that really encouraged um, improving women's lives through education, um, through economic support, and so forth. And then kind of fast forward to the 60s and 70s when, like so many other places in the world, Morocco was experiencing a lot of changes in sort of a wave of um, uh, growing kind of left-leaning politics or socialist politics, and women started to form um, uh, sort of to join these kind of left-leaning political parties and started to form cells within them that would really address women's issues, women's economic issues, education, and so forth. Um, and then um, sort of fast forward beyond that um, through some very rocky uh, political issues and problems through the 60s and 70s and 80s under King Hassan II. Um, to 1999 when King Hassan's son, Mohammed VI, came to the throne and uh, politics really kind of shifted after that. The the Socialist Party um, uh, came into kind of dominance in the political scene and so a lot of the projects that they had kind of sponsored, including uh, women's rights and Mudawana reform, were able to, to kind of come to fruition in certain ways. And so then we had the reform in 2004, and um, since then, of course, Morocco, like many other places in the region, has um, seen some some protests and calls for political reform and increased uh, rights for different groups in society and calls for democracy and so forth. So it's been an interesting period, really, since the 50s, Morocco has just changed a lot over that period of time um, and um, seen a lot of kind of political ups and downs in certain ways that are really important to the story of this women's rights movement. 
I find it very interesting, your point that after independence, so in about 1957, there was this critical moment after, after this crisis had been resolved where women who had participated in the Moroccan nationalist movement were asked to kind of return to the home and to their domestic status. And I see a parallel there with France, being a French historian myself, and like in the U.S. after the World Wars, where women who had rallied to the cause had then been very quickly asked to return to their domestic spaces. Mm -hmm. um, but you argue that poverty and women's issues are very tightly linked in, in contemporary Morocco. So could you paint a picture for us of the living conditions in Morocco today for, for urban women, rural women? Uh, where does most of the population live and what effect do these conditions have on women in particular? Wow, those are important questions. Um, in Morocco is such a co complex place, so I, I hope I can speak to all those different aspects of the question. Um, Morocco has a lot of real um, inequalities and differences according to region or rural versus urban uh, location. Um, there's the sort of the coastline um, on the Atlantic Ocean, there's the north that's really sort of in uh, close relationship with Europe, which is Spain is just eight miles north of Morocco. And then there's the southern region, the mountains, which tends to be a bit more um, rural, um, where there are more uh, um, Amazigh or Berber groups. And Morocco is experiencing a lot of um, development issues around um, uh, how development is happening so rapidly in the cities. I mean, like in Rabat right now, there's a um, like a subway system. Uh, Casablanca is a huge economic um, and cultural capital with skyscrapers and all that kind of stuff. And then you have some isolated rural villages that um, you know have very little infrastructure, no good roads, no water, things like that. And there are some waves of um, population change in Morocco, like in other places in the region, with a lot of people leaving the rural area, especially right now. There's been sort of an ongoing drought or drought years and a couple of good years and then more drought, which is really dealt a blow to agriculture. So a lot of these rural families have been moving into the cities and there um, can experience great poverty living in these kind of shanty towns in the cities. Um, so um, you'll have, you can have a, a very kind of well-to-do Moroccan family or neighborhood in one of these urban areas um, in that can look so completely different from a really um, isolated, very impoverished village. And so women, there are a lot of um, effects on women from that. First of all, in rural areas, you know, women, they have to struggle to be able to attend school because the school might be very far, far away from their house. Their workload is very, very hard because they have to worry about bringing water, bringing um, firewood, um, getting food, things like that. And also, for a lot of women in rural areas, the men in their family have migrated either to the cities or to Europe or elsewhere abroad. And so in many in many rural areas, women are really kind of left behind and they have to then take care of the house, manage the farm, things like that as well. 
Um, and then when women um, end up in these shanty towns in the cities, they also experience like problems with education or with employment. Um, also trying to keep a family together that's now moved to a city and living in pretty dire circumstances, maybe without um, access to water and, and other kinds of basic necessity necessities. And then another really important part of um, this story for women is the literacy rate. So illiteracy is very high. And I, um, maybe the, I know some of the statistics I used in the book are a little bit out of date, but it's still, you know, the majority of women are illiterate. And when you look at women in the rural areas, that goes way up to, depending on the region, to 80 to 90% of women being illiterate. And that's not just women. Men are also very illiterate. So in those same settings, the illiteracy rate for men is also quite high, but it's much higher for women, mostly because of access to school and they're, they're dropping out of school earlier to work or to marry or something like that. Okay. So thank you. You've engaged in participant observation with a number of women's rights groups and associations. So can you give us a, an overview of, of those groups? Who are they? What are their goals? Who are the women uh, that run the associations and who are the women that come to them for help? Okay. Well, um, yes, I did participant observation, which um, for those listeners who might not know what that is, is a, a kind of the central method of cultural anthropologists like me, where we really try to become part of a community by participating in what they do, but then also observing what they're doing and who they are while we're participating so that we're trying to really understand their lives from their own points of view as much as possible. So I tried to spend as much time as possible with a variety of women's rights associations, just hanging out in the office, maybe doing some volunteer work, um, stuffing envelopes, sitting in on um, conversations between uh, women who worked for the organization or volunteered or between them and the women who came to visit them. And there are a variety of different kinds of women's associations in Morocco. I mean, there are associations that do every imagine or take on every imaginable issue related to women. Um, but I focused in on uh, associations that were really referring primarily to reform of the Mudawana or educating women about their uh, human rights as women. And so those, um, many of the associations I looked at were urban associations that might have several chapters throughout Morocco in different places. They were, um, you know, very professionalized. So they had a professional staff in the office that might include the president, vice president, and a couple of program directors and an accountant and a secretary and um, language tutors for the literacy classes, things like that. And then they might have different project sites like a, a boarding house for women um, who needed to escape an abusive marriage, or they might have a training center to help women get job skills. Um, and they'd have classrooms where they carried out the literacy classes. So there, that's one set of associations. And then um, a few others that I tried to cover were maybe more focused on a particular issue, like a, an association that devotes itself to fighting violence against women um, or just kind of a local neighborhood association that a group of friends might form to teach about women's human rights in the community. Um, 
So the, one of the points I really wanted to make in the book was that these associations attracted a lot of different kinds of women to them for different motivations. Um, so women um, came to work or volunteer there for personal reasons or to get sort of professional experience or because they wanted to hang out with their friend who also worked for the association or because they had an interest in a particular issue or because they were a professional like a lawyer or doctor who wanted to volunteer and and help women who came to the association. And then um, these associations would have programs for um, what they called beneficiaries who would come in maybe to consult with a lawyer to see if they had a good reason to um, or a good uh, possibility of divorcing a husband for something um, or maybe to get help with a sexual harassment issue at work um, or to understand the law better so that they could intervene in their daughter's marriage or something like that. So they would come and consult with the person on that staff who could best kind of help them um, and then the association would decide if they were able to really support that woman substantively in in some way okay well you tell so many richly developed stories about some of the women who arrive on the doorsteps of these associations seeking help is there one story that you could pull out right now and highlight for us and recount oh yeah gosh let's see there are so many great stories and that the book is very story based because I just really did want, I wanted someone who read this book to feel like by the end, they really understand who Moroccan women are and where they're coming from and why these issues matter to them. Um, so I spend a lot of time on stories and also I just think that it's, it's so important to understand the complexities behind things that often get kind of glossed over. Um, For example, there's a tendency to think that the kind of women who are involved in associations in a country like Morocco are just these disconnected elites who are, you know, don't really aren't that typical and kind of don't have their pulse or their finger on the pulse of Moroccan women or something like that. So I wanted to really, Um, humanize these women and show them in all their complexities. And one of the most interesting stories to me was um, about a woman whom I believe I called Aisha in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And and she had, um, when she was young, she met a man and really fell in love with him and went to her father and said, you know, I want to marry this man. And her father said, I say no. I don't think that's a good idea. And during this period of time, the law was in place that required her to contract her marriage through her father or another male relative. So without his permission, she was not able to marry this man she wanted to marry. But she worked on her father and worked on him and worked on him. And, you know, she said, "Why, why won't you let me marry him? And he said, because I can look ahead and see his character and where it's going to take you. He's not a good man. This will not be a good marriage, and I'm trying to protect you. And she begged and begged and pleaded and worked on him, and finally he said, okay, I'll let you marry him. So she married him, and indeed, within a few years, he had turned out to be very violent. Um, He didn't want to work. He wanted her to work, so he... Um, forced her to work in a variety of jobs and then wanted her to be a prostitute. 
And when she started making um, attempts to leave him and end the marriage, he became very violent. So what's really interesting about this story, again, this this could be the story of so many people, but for, for um, when it, the reason it became such an interesting story for talking about this women's rights movement is that she then tried to sort of go back to her family. Her father had died by this time, and she went to her family to kind of get help from them. But they rejected her a little bit and said, you know, our father told you not to marry this man, and you did it anyway, and you've gone against the family, so now you kind of have to figure this out on your own, which shows how difficult it is for women to kind of make their own decision and go against what their family would have them do. There are some consequences to that choice. Um, so anyway, she, she thought, well, then I'll go and get help. She wanted to divorce him and she wanted to uh, prosecute him for the violence against her. And he, she wanted to divorce him and keep her daughter away from him. So she went to some women's rights organizations and finally found one that she just really loved and came to feel like they were her family and they helped her get the divorce. They um, set her up with a, a paid position in the association, um, working with other women who had been victims of violence. And she really, in that role, really came kind of into her own and really came to feel that she was strong and invincible and she could do anything. And, um, and she had then sort of dedicated her life to the women's rights movement. And one of the things that was so interesting to me, oh, and by the way, her family, after some time, mended fences with her and, and everything was fine there. Her, bro- her siblings ended up sort of taking her back in and being, like I say, mending fences. But anyway, well, one of the things that was so interesting was talking to her. Um, you know, I said that it's, there's an interesting kind of irony here because you're trying to change the law that allowed your father to protect you from this husband. So your father could have said, absolutely not. You cannot marry him and you would have been okay. But now you want to get rid of that law and make it so that a woman can choose her own spouse without her father's input. You know, so what do you make of that? And there was just this this kind of aha moment in the field when she really thought about that deeply. And I, I saw this change come over her face when she, she said, you know, I, I know where you're coming from, but what's more important is that a woman be allowed to choose her own life, even if it comes with those um, consequences. So I really felt that she embodied how the these associations and the women's rights movement will take an individual woman who comes to them for whatever reason and really shape her into a women's rights activist and someone who's going to be committed to legal reform and to the education of women about their rights. Mm-hmm. And Aisha seems to um, embody a trajectory of many women that you describe who come seeking help from different associations and then end up joining them and becoming part of the group of uh, committed women who engage in this process that you call of convincing in the French, convaincre. Can you tell us about that process of convincing? Well, it really... Um came to be key in my research. Everyone used that word, which can be sort of convinced or convicted, um, and talked about how important it was that people were convinced, how people um, 
had to be convinced or show that they were convinced to really be sort of trusted and considered to be a real insider of these associations. And I noticed that there was a process in, in which slowly the association kind of shaped a woman like Aisha um, from someone who had a real personal motivation into someone who really started to see her problem not as an individual problem, but as a collective problem that other Moroccan women faced, and then who came to see that the best solution for that collective problem was a legal solution, and then was able to sort of speak to that and use particular language about women's rights, and then... Um, take that message outside the association and into the public. So um, at the end of the time that I knew Aisha, she was not only um, had her divorce and was working for the association and helping other women who had suffered abuse um, to, to start to, to begin this process of convincing, but she was also saying, you know, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write my story and I'm going to publish it. And it's going to be a book that can, other women can read and it can help them become strong and aware of women's rights too. So the full convincing process really turns you into an activist, an activist through words and actions. Okay. So a lot of these women's groups, all of them really have to negotiate in Morocco around other organisms um, in society, such as the monarchy, political parties, civil society, and international funding agencies. And so tell us about um, the ways that women's groups negotiate around these other organisms that, that they both need and that they want to influence. Okay, great question. Um, yeah, it's, it's important to think about how this movement rests inside all these different factors that are so important. The monarchy, civil society, um, funding agencies, and other kinds of political players. And I've conceptualized this in terms of um, obstacles and opportunities because each of those really presents both. So the king, for example, has been a real ally of the women's rights movement. When he took the throne in 1999, he immediately um, got involved with a proposal um, that had been offered by the main uh, left-leaning political party. It was called the um, uh, Plan of Action for the Integration of Women in Development that would have um, done a lot, of, a lot to the Mudawana that actually was accomplished in 2004. And so the king got behind that but then there were some protests against it, um, and so the king kind of stepped back and he formed a commission, a, a consultative commission to discuss the matter and decide, you know, help him decide what he should do about reforming the Mudawana. And so there were a lot of different perspectives here around the king or the monarchy in general. Um, you know, some women's rights activists really felt that the king is our close ally. He's the most powerful person in the country. He has both political and religious authority. And, you know, let's just hitch our wagon to his star and he'll see us through to the end. He'll 
get these reforms on the table. He'll help us realize them, and he's our best ally. Other women in the um, associations or in the movement would say, well, he is a close ally, but he's not a perfect ally. So, for example, when these protests happened, he sort of backed away. Um, and also, you know, he's part of a political system that represents some challenges um, in terms of uh, limiting uh, political participation and things like that. And then other uh, women or men in the group um, could say, you know, the king, we shouldn't see him as an ally at all because he is the um, the sort of ultimate example of a patriarchal system that lets men rule over younger men and all women. So there were a lot of different kinds of viewpoints about him. And same thing with the other fields, you know, is, is civil society and political parties – they're our friends in the sense that they can work with us and help us advance our agenda, but then they can also turn against us or question us or challenge us or ask us to change our own agenda. Um, and I thought that this was particularly salient on the issue of um, funding. So there was a lot of funding come in, coming into the Women's Rights Associations um, during 2002 and three, when I was doing the bulk of my research. And this funding was obviously wonderful in one sense because it gave them so much money to do a lot of the programs that they wanted to do. A lot of this funding was from um, non-governmental organizations outside of Morocco, mostly from the West or from uh, Western governments and aid programs, or there was some funding coming from within Morocco as well. Um, so the funding enabled a lot and represented a fantastic opportunity, but then could also be an obstacle. So one of the real challenges these associations um, uh, were facing was the professionalization of the movement. So, you know, an association that had been founded in a very grassroots way with a group of women who were all in the same political party and had kind of grown up from there – um, now was funding one of those women to be the accountant and was asking one of the other women, um, you know, to, to provide reports and to make those reports look exactly a certain way, which distracted her away from the sort of grassroots organizing work that she had always done. And it set inequalities between people within the associations and um, led to some other kinds of program, uh, some other kinds of problems, um, as perceived by certain members of these associations that um, the funders were, were trying to kind of set their agenda or decide who could and could not be involved in their efforts. So these things, this, you know, sort of set of fields, political and social fields in which this movement um, is located really put a lot of, enabled a lot and limited a lot. And it was really interesting to see how, the members of these associations navigated that and negotiated it and had very different opinions about it, which really drew my attention again to the complexity of women within this movement. Now, you say that um, much of the funding coming from the West, in fact, is coming from NGOs, non-governmental organizations, as well as from European and North American embassies. So, what do the embassies do? Is this part of, for example, U.S. foreign policy to aid women's groups in North Africa and the Middle East, for example? 
Yes. Um, yeah, there were a lot of um, embassies sort of working um, directly on behalf of governments or um, sort of organizations like USAID that are kind of really part of the U.S. government, although kind of operating as a separate kind of organization that would give money for, um, for example, a lot of them were really interested in women's development issues, so they might fund a job training program. Um, but a lot of them were also really involved in kind of political participation um, or political training kind of initiatives. So um, they might... Uh, put on some kind of conference where um, trainers would speak and help activists understand, um, you know, how to, how to run a lobbying campaign, how to, how to lobby the government for um, legal change or certain benefits for women or something like that. Or um, some of the women's associations that worked on um, political participation for women, um, there might be an event that would, you know, sort of train women in how to run campaigns, how to how to run for office, how to get people to vote for them, and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, in what way does this Western support represent a threat for perhaps some of the more conservative or Islamist parts of Moroccan society today? Yeah, another good question. It's really it really came to um, be a, a problem discursively. So it was something, a, a very easy kind of accusation that could be made against these associations that they were sort of sold out to the West or that they were operating on, on a Western agenda or something like that. And in fact, um, I, I mentioned earlier that when King Mohammed VI came to the throne in 1999 and, and initially supported this plan of action, there were protests against it. And those protests were led by um, Islamist groups and Islamist of course is such a clumsy term because it can, you know, we apply it to ISIS and we apply it to um, a perfectly moderate Islamist group in, a, you know, somewhere else in the Islamic world. So it's a terrible term, but basically can refer to anyone who is looking first at Islam as a way for um, as a, a way to inform like political and social systems. And so the um, Islamists in Morocco, the, the political party and this kind of um, social organization um, that is not in the political system but kind of works through more informal social channels. That, so the two most powerful organizations are quite moderate, actually, um, and aren't necessarily against women's rights. But they had led this protest against the plan of action because, as one of the leaders of that protest said, you know, I look at this reform, this plan of action, and I see World Bank, World Bank, World Bank. You know, it's everything is in the language of the West, whereas we have our own language. We have the language of Islam. So why can't we find the support for all of those rights um, in our own text, in our own language? So. It was very problematic, this Western funding. And um, But one of the signs to me of kind of the maturity and the power of this women's rights movement is that a lot of the associations in the movement 
were really able to kind of get that funding on their own terms. So, you know, they were rejecting certain organizations or governments and saying, we don't want to accept money from them. One association I worked with um, in 2003, after the U.S. invaded Iraq, she said, that's it. We'll never accept another dollar from an American association, no matter what. Um, and as far as I know, they've been able to stick with that. Um, and yeah, that's kind of trying to, if they don't like the kind of parameters set by one funder, they go and find another one. So they definitely were not sold out to the West, but that was an easy, again, an easy accusation to make against them um, by those who didn't really want any Western presence or interference in these intimate issues of family and society and religion. About these intimate issues, then, let's head into the family code itself and the 2004 reform of the Mudawana. Um, a little bit of history first. So this is a family code that uh, you say exists in, in other um, Middle Eastern nations and that uh, has a long history, finds its bases in various textual sources. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, they're based on... Um or it's based on, um, in its ideal form, very much an Islamic text. And so, um, first of all, what does the Quran say about the relationships between men and women or various family members? And then how has what the Quran says been matched by the stories and precedents set during the life of Muhammad himself? So those two sources of authority are very important for thinking about um, the, the foundation of a family code. And then um, Islam is so interesting because that, you know, they took those old texts and now there are hundreds of years of different efforts to interpret those texts and apply them to contemporary issues. So that can also be drawn upon in determining what a family code should be. Mm-hmm. So it's very much based in Islam in that sense. But at the same time, because there are all these multiple interpretations, actually every Muslim majority society has a different family code or personal status code from all the other Muslim societies in the world. So they're all claiming that it's Islam, but they all have kind of different manifestations and laws. So, of course, there are other things in those laws besides Islam. There are um, colonial laws. There are, um, you know, European legal codes that have been kind of uh, borrowed from and brought into um, the, the system of forming the family code. So, actually, family codes are really, really complex. But from the point of view of many Moroccans, they feel it's the only set of laws that still have any kind of basis in Islam. So that's where that intimacy comes in. Like this is, we're talking about our family and we're talking about an Islamic family. And, you know, so they get very sensitive about any kind of effort to, to change those laws, even though we know that they're not necessarily Islamic law. Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating that you say um, that all legal codes in Morocco are European derived, except for the Mudawana, despite maybe some have, having some European or colonial influences added in. But that Sharia or Islamic texts form the basis for only this legal code in um, Morocco still today. Right, isn't that interesting? 
Yes. So let's talk about the changes in 2004 in some depth. Um, so it's very much beginning with marriage. What changes in 2004? So in marriage, um, the, a woman can choose to contract her marriage herself. And what that means is that in Islam, marriage is based on a contract that the two parties come together and sign. And then there may be a wedding associated with that, but the marriage is not the wedding. The marriage is the contract. So um, traditionally, women would contract that marriage through a male representative. And now women can choose that, um, choose to have a male representative or not, just do it on, on their own. It also, I think this is what I forgot earlier, the um, 2004 Madonna also on paper raises the age of marriage to 18 for males and females. So um, no marriage before the age of 18. Okay. What about um, two kind of controversial Issues, polygamy and repudiation. Tell us about what the 2004 reform changes on those two issues. Okay, well, for um, polygamy, so previously men, previously and today, men have been allowed to marry up to four wives. Um, And that comes directly from um, the Quran, which says, marry you, um, you know, one, two, three, or four of them, of women. Um, And so it's been the foundation for this idea that, well, Islam allows a man to have up to four wives. But actually, there is a sort of a caveat, which is that if you can treat them equally. And then elsewhere in the Quran, it says it's impossible to treat your wives equally, no matter how hard you try. So there's kind of some room to move here. And in the um, proposal for reform that the king offered um, towards the end of 2003, You know, he said, I can't forbid what Islam allows or allow what Islam forbids. So I can't abolish polygamy altogether. Um, But what I can do is make it so that a man really has to show that his marriages are equal. So he has to come before the court and he has to really show that if he's, you know, if he's got a house for this wife, he has a house for the other wife. If he has, you know a car for this wife, he has a car for the other wife. And so uh, basically it was kind of making it so difficult to actually get approval for polygamy that um, very few pe- very few people would actually be able to accomplish it. Of course, very few people practice polygamy anyway. Only um, maybe 3% of the, of the marriages in Morocco are polygamous or polygynous more specifically. Um, so that, but that was controversial because again, it's, this is our tradition. It's been allowed. Why are you changing it? If the, the Quran allows it, then, you know, why should we even talk about sort of limiting it? And then it was controversial for the women's rights associations too, because they wanted it abolished altogether because it's an inequality between men and women. And the other issue, repudiation is an informal form of divorce that men have been able to practice in the past where they basically can just say, I divorce you, and that's the divorce. They don't have to go to court or anything like that. Previous laws tried to make it so that they would have to register that at the court, but it wasn't really enforced. Um, but now the, the regulation is pretty strict that you know there's no 
informal divorce. Repudiation has to be taken before the court, and then the court orders a kind of negotiation, reconciliation process, or tries to make sure that the the repudiated wife is going to be able to be taken care of after the end of the marriage and so forth. It also um, surprisingly gave women the right to uh, repudiation. And here I have to kind of go back and make sure I get the details of this right. Excuse me just one second. Page 213, I think. Oh, thank you. Um, so, let's see. Although I believe you argue that, in fact, it's... it's um, unlikely to be occurring except in more than a few exceptional cases. Right. That's it. Yeah. So it's kind of, it gives women the right, but they have to, um, they have to have it in their marriage contract in the first place that their husband will allow them this right, which of course is very, um, unlikely to happen. I mean, who, who at the time of, signing a a marriage contract says, oh, by the way, I want us to write in that I can repudiate you if I want to later on down the line. So um, it's not a very realistic change, but it's interesting that the change was made. Mm -hmm. So women are given the right to repudiate, though it has to be written in advance in a kind of prenuptial contract, let's say. But women are not given the right to engage in uh, the feminine version of polygamy, right? Right, exactly. So why not make uh, women's right to repudiation automatic? That didn't happen. That is a very good question. Okay. Uh, I don't know the answer to it. Yeah. What about child custody? Although all in all of these areas, the 2004 reform does seem to improve the uh, the law for women. Uh, oof, some of it still remains quite unequal, notably in the custody. Yeah, and this, again, this is a really good example of how these reforms are so difficult um, when they sort of speak against the deep tradition. And the deep tradition here would be the belief that children really belong to the father. Morocco is a patrilineal society um, in which identity, name, even religious identity, religious status, and citizenship is passed down from father to child. So... Um, contrary to the way we might think about the system and, and think that really mothers kind of come first, um, generally speaking, many Moroccans would say that um, fathers really, uh, children really belong to fathers. So um, there have been some changes before that would make it, um, the, the issue is really um, Remarriage. So when a, a marriage is over, a woman keeps custody of her children, although the father has the right, the right to make certain decisions about the child, like about their education and, and other kinds of important structural things. But the problem is what happens when that woman remarries. And so now she's brought another man into their lives. And since fathers are kind of the the children kind of belong to fathers, then that's very problematic from the ex-husband's point of view. So there have been some kind of shifts to the law. But basically what happened in 2004 is that a mother can retain custody of her children if she remarries under two conditions. 
The first is if the child is under seven years of age, automatically she retains custody. Or if the separation of mother and child can be shown to be potentially harmful to either one of them. So there's a lot of room there for the courts to say, well, this child is 10 years old, but clearly she really loves her mother and it's in the best interest for her to stay with her mother. Um, But it's not, quote unquote, perfect from our point of view because it doesn't automatically let her keep um, the custody of her children upon remarriage. Mm -hmm. Well, so... Very important legal changes that happened in this Wudawana legal code. What effect have these legal changes had? I know the code change came at the end of your research period, but I'm sure you've been following a bit. So, and you do treat that a little bit in the in the end of your book. So, what what real effect has this had? Well, it's been a fraught process of kind of implementing these reforms. So they're quite clearly and strongly worded on paper, but some loopholes were left um, in the laws that really gave a lot of discretion to the judges adjudicating a particular case. So, for example, um, the legal age of marriage, the minimum legal age of marriage is 18. But if a family comes to court and says, you know, we want our daughter's only 17, but she really wants to marry and we want her to marry and it's in her best interest. She's ready. You know, this is her best financial prospect. Um, it's not like she's going to go to college. You know, she this is a really good sort of economic financial prospect for her, um, then the judge has discretion to say, okay, then she can marry even though she's only 17 or 16 or whatever. Um, And then also, you know, the way the judge, the the, um, courtroom is really kind of a space for negotiation and discussion. And so as that discussion is taking place, you know, the, the biases or perspectives of the judge become really important. Um, to that process. Then also there were some changes that were made on paper that were supposed to sort of improve the system of making decisions about uh, marriage and divorce. So um, the cases were supposed to be handled in a certain way in courts that were specifically for family issues and no case was supposed to take more than six months. Um, And a lot of those kinds of promises that would have smoothed out a lot of the problems in the system were really impossible for Morocco to implement right away. You know, they would require the retraining of judges, um, more courtrooms, more personnel, things like that, that um, were difficult or, you know, financially impossible um, for the Moroccan government to do right away. So, actually, if you look at reports that came out within a year or two of the um, the new Mudawana, you see that a lot of these things just really didn't change. The the you know there were still polygamous marriages. There were still girls marrying below the age of eighteen. The sort of um, uh, irreconcilable differences, divorce wasn't really being um, asked for. Women were choosing the sort of forms of divorce that they had um, petitioned for in the past. But then as we look at reports that came out a year or two after that, we start to see the numbers change a little bit. So the activists that I worked with, um, you know, they, as we were approaching this reform, 
they would always say to me, this is not an end. This is a beginning. Like, this is just getting it on paper. But the actual implementation of this is going to be really generations of work as we, you know, try to educate women about their rights, educate communities about their rights, make it so that in the courtroom women feel um, that they know their rights and feel confident demanding them and, and so forth and so on, much less as we retrain judges and other legal personnel to kind of understand the spirit of the new Dawana. Thank you, Amy. So as we conclude, tell us about the results of Arab Spring in 2011 in Morocco. How did that change things for Morocco and how did that change things for women? Well, things didn't get as, um, as, what's the word? Things went a lot more smoothly in Morocco than in many other places in the Arab world. Um, the the results of there were some protests in Morocco about um, again like sort of in favor of democracy and political participation and curbing some of the power of the king and his closest ministers, and that did lead to some um, constitutional reform that sort of makes um, some has some important language on paper. Um, and the, to me, you know, and I haven't been in Morocco since then. And so I've been kind of watching the situation from afar, but what's really interesting for me is how, um, the, the sort of, I could see kind of the success of the women's rights movement in that it seemed like a lot of things were, up for debate and discussion and kind of up for grabs about the role of um, different kinds of um, minority groups in Morocco, about the role of youth, about political participation and so forth and so on, but not about women. I felt that a lot of the things that I've read, which are media accounts and reports and blogs and things like that, in all the discussion around um, what Morocco will look like from now on, the, the, rights of women to the um, to the new laws, the rights of women to kind of um, their role in the family and society and all those seem to be pretty settled. Like, again, there, there wasn't great discussion and debate about those. They were on to other things. So, um, you know, the um, part of the reforms made it so that 15% of parliament is now reserved for female candidates. Um, the rights of women were set down very firmly in the new constitution and just in the kind of public discourse about it. It seemed that people really took for granted that women um, have these rights now. But what's interesting is, um, and I talk about sort of towards in, in the very end of the book um, that there was an interesting case that came up um, regarding a young woman who in, in the details of the situation are, very complicated, but here's the way the story would be told by the women's rights activists that I studied, that this young woman was raped by a man and then forced to marry him. Um, and that because of that, because of her treatment by him and by his family, she ended up committing suicide. And this became just a, a huge moment 
uh, for women's rights activists and youth activists and others where they said, you know, this shows that we can reform the mudawana, we can reform laws about marriage and divorce and so forth, but the problem goes beyond that. So now we have to look at the the criminal code, we have to look at the labor code, we have to look at all these other bodies of laws and practices in Morocco, we have to change families, we have to make families understand that rape is a is a horrible thing and you can't just make it all okay by marrying the woman to her rapist. So it kind of became this, this crystallizing moment of all the things that are still left to be done. So it's Morocco is in an interesting time now where I feel like for these women, so many of their rights are more secure than they have been since the Mudawana was reformed in 2004. But at the same time, they're vulnerable in a lot of ways still. And it's going to be exciting to see how these women's rights associations and activists really shift their strategies and their programs and their activities and their efforts in order to um, in order to sort of best utilize this moment where they've kind of gotten their what they wanted but now have to make it work in the way they wanted it to work thank you Amy thank you for speaking us to us today about your book the Moroccan women's rights movement it's been fascinating Thank you. Will you conclude by telling us about your next research project? Well, it's um, I'm in a kind of a wonderful, strange moment um, in life myself, which is that I've gotten tenure recently. And um, congratulations! <laughs> thank you. Post tenure is kind of a nice time to really say, okay, what do I want to do now? What do I want to do next? Um, and I'm still feeling that out in a lot of ways. But I have a couple of different projects that are quite a departure from studying the Moroccan women's rights movement. And by the way, I have to say, I think I'll always study the Moroccan women's rights movement in some way and always be, always be going back to Morocco for more research. Um, but these two newer projects are quite different. And one is looking at Christianity in the Middle East and North Africa. And not only um, indigenous Christians but um, like communities of Christians who have come to the Middle East um, to work, to live, so forth. So in the, in the Arabian Peninsula, in countries like the UAE, Oman, um, Kuwait, there are lots and lots and lots of foreign Christians living there who have built these churches and church communities and things like that. So I'm interested, and I've, I've started doing some um, some ethnographic research there on this, looking at this, how they form a Christian community within this larger um, Islamic context. So that project will take me to the Arabian Peninsula, but then also to um, parts of the United States where Middle Eastern Christians have come, have immigrated and come to live. So that's one project. And then a second project is on American agriculture because I I'm a gardener, and my husband and I have started a small produce farm, and there's something nice about um, being at this point in my career and sort of turning the lens back on myself and saying, oh, instead of studying other people, why don't I study myself? So I'm interested in looking at um, 
people my age and younger who are sort of coming back to the farm and the land and trying to, um, to trying to bring back farming as a whole way of life. So we'll see how I can relate those to my previous research in Morocco. It, actually, there are all kinds of ways to do that. For example, um, by looking at how many of these young farmers in the U.S. are women. Um, and like women farmers around the world, um, they face the very interesting situation that men really own the land and women do a lot of the farming work. So what does that look like in the United States among people um, my age and younger. That could be a really interesting way to tie this to uh, women's issues faced in Morocco. Well, those sound like two fascinating projects, Amy, and I just want to thank you again for speaking to us about your first book, and I'm looking forward to the second and third. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Take care. Goodbye, Amy. Thank you, Julie.